Good evening. Nice to see you. I, wa- I got here about uh, 6.15, pulled in out there and uh, walked in and I thought uh, we might be down a little bit tonight. But you all rushed in there right, uh, right about time, so it's really nice to see you. Glad to be back again tonight. Hope you had a great day. Hope you didn't get stuck in traffic out on 35. I heard earlier today there was some kind of traffic backup snarl out there. And uh, when coming from 40, coming down 40 from Shawnee to Oklahoma City, that can be a nightmare right now. And uh, Highway 9, getting to Norman, there's almost no way you can get here without worrying about traffic. But tonight, I don't know if it was the rain or what. I was afraid it would take me longer, but it was as clear as it could be. So the Lord is smiling on us. So here we are. Well, if you have that handout that you received, uh, hopefully, uh, last night, you open to the page that says structure at the top. So we're past the introduction. Uh, I'm going to always try to orient you to where we are big picture and uh, then where, where we are in the notes more specifically. So if you're looking at the big structure, just the page marked structure, we talked about the opening, didn't spend a lot of time on that last night, but at least uh, the main lines of it, that's one, one through two. Then the Thanksgiving section, uh, where the focus was on suffering and the comfort that we have in, our, in the midst of our affliction, uh, we did, we, that's what we ended with last night, that would be the Thanksgiving section, that's chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and now tonight we move to the body. And as, as much as this first section of the body we can do tonight, that'd be, that would be good. So the body breaks down into three sections. The first part of the body is 112 through 716. I have it here on the structure as Roman numeral 1, the character, conduct, and crisis of Paul's ministry, 112 through 716. We're going to start there in just a moment talking about Paul defends his travel plans. He'd changed his travel plans a couple of times uh, since he'd written 1 Corinthians. And the opponents there, these false apostles, they're using that against Paul. They're saying, somehow, you can't trust him as an apostle, as a minister, because he keeps, tra- he keeps changing his travel plans. Now, if you have to keep changing your travel plans, what does that say about how clearly you're hearing from God? I mean... Does God need to change his plans? So if Paul were a true apostle, really hearing from God, he wouldn't ever have to change his plans because he'd hear from God, God would tell him what he needed to do, and and then he would do it, and there'd be no need to ever change. And and so he's going to defend that. He's going to feel the need to take some time to say, that's my changing of my travel plans has nothing to do with with, uh, my um, weak relationship with God. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then, under this first section, it's all we're going to try to do tonight. The character, conduct, and crisis of Paul's ministry, 112 through 716. A, Paul's defense of his travel plans. And then B, and this will be more of what we'll do tonight, the character of Paul's ministry. And nowhere do we get a glimpse into the way Paul thinks about ministry to this extent as what we get in this section 214 through chapter 7 verse 4 you see that on the on the big structure under body roman numeral one 
then A, Paul's defense of his travel plans, and then B, the character of Paul's ministry. And when Paul thinks about his ministry, he can summarize it in four different ways. His ministry is a ministry of suffering. His opponents will use his suffering as some sort of indication that his apostleship is not authentic. He actually turns that around and uses his suffering as authentication that he's a genuine apostle. So we have a discussion of his ministry of suffering. Then he talks about his ministry of the Spirit in chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And apparently, it seems as if there is some charge against him that somehow his ministry lacks the Spirit. That what he does, he does according to the flesh. That what he does, he does merely by his own human ingenuity. That somehow he lacks the power of the Spirit. And so he has a section there where he he describes his ministry as a ministry of the Spirit. Then in chapter 4, he talks about his ministry as as a great treasure that God has given him in an earthen vessel. And and that's where he gets back to the suffering again, and he talks about the weakness of his body and how frail and fragile the body is, and yet there's something that is beyond the external that you can't see that is more important than this body that is is temporal and fragile, and and that's that's what really defines a person. And and that is what's still growing, this inner man. And so although his body may be weak, there's something much more powerful within him that God has placed there. So his ministry is one of a great treasure in an earthen vessel. Uh, And then the last section of this, if you're following along there, Paul's ministry of reconciliation. And, And that's where we'll try to get to tonight. If we can get through that, we're doing good. But that's the last aspect of his ministry that he wants to talk about and and that sounds as close to a job description as paul will ever give us that his ministry was a ministry of reconciliation we are ambassadors for christ and we are ambassadors of reconciliation he'd been reconciled to god and now this ministry of reconciliation had been given to him so that's what we're going to do tonight so let's go back and uh, just start here at chapter one Beginning at verse 12, we're into the body now, and this is A, Paul's defense of his travel plans. He says at chapter 1, verse 12, Indeed, this is our boast, the testimony of our conscience. We have behaved in the world with uh, frankness, without guile, and godly sincerity, not by fleshly wisdom or earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and all the more toward you. For we write you nothing other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand until the end, as you have already understood us in part, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, we are your boast, even as you are our boast. So as Paul gets into this, this, what he's going to describe about his travel plans, he says, now I'm, I'm just going to give it to you straight. I'm just going to write it so that you can understand. And I'm going to be clear about it. So this is the way it is. It's going to be an open book. Here it is. You can trust what I'm going to tell you now. And, and you'll notice he's used the word boast a couple of times already. Uh, the word for boast, either the noun or the verb, uh, occurs about, oh, let me get the exact number, 48 times in the New Testament you have the word for either the noun boast, calcasis, or the verb for boasting, calcaamai. So it kind of sounds like a 
uh, a rooster crowing, kalkaamai, uh, 48 times in the New Testament, either the noun or the verb for boasting occurs, and 46 of those 48 times, it's Paul who uses it. So, so it's almost uniquely Paul to use this term of boasting, and to talk about boasting and, and the noun or the verb of it. And 23 of those times, it's in 2 Corinthians. So he uses the word for boasting in some form far more than anywhere else in 2 Corinthians, and he's the only one who uses it, really. So there's a lot about boasting because his opponents apparently do a good bit of boasting. And then he feels the need to sort of respond by almost poking fun of their boasting. When Paul talks about his boasting, the kind of boasting he does, he's not talking about tooting your own horn. That's what we usually think of when we think of boasting. That's not what Paul's doing when he talks about his boasting. He boasts in the Lord. His boasting is always comes around to, he can, he can boast in the Lord because he believes that when the day of the Lord comes, that a day is coming down the road in the future where he will be vindicated and he can boast in the Lord. He may provide some defense here of himself, but ultimately his boasting is in the Lord because he believes that on that day, on the day of the Lord, he will be vindicated, he and his ministry. His boasting is not about bragging about his accomplishments. That's the nature of his boasting. When he critiques others for their boasting, they're tooting their own horn. It's, it's, the, kind of, it's, it's the way we think of boasting usually. So that sets it up. Now let's get into it. He says in verse 15, Since I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a double show of grace. Now your translation may say double favor, double, double generous action or something like that, but it's just the word for grace. He said, here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to come to you twice so that you could have double grace, a double favor. He says in verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on to Judea. Two visits. I was going to visit you on the way to Macedonia and then I was going to come back through and visit you after I left the province of Macedonia. So he had promised them he was going to visit them on two occasions to give them this double blessing. Of course, his travel plans changed. Now what's interesting, look at 1 Corinthians 16. Before he decided to come to them twice, here's what he told them about his travel plans. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. So at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, he was telling them, here's my plans. I'm, I plan to visit you when I, when I go to Macedonia, and I might even spend the winter with you. So he doesn't talk about two visits, he just talks about a visit and spending the winter with them. Likely, probably, possibly. Well, sometime between the writing of 1 Corinthians and the writing of 2 Corinthians, he told them something else. He decided that he was going to come to them twice. He was going to visit them on his way to Macedonia and come back through Macedonia. 
maybe he wouldn't stay the winter, but he'd make two visits, and then that could be like a double blessing for them. But what ended up happening, he didn't do either of those. He ended up visiting them, and it's the visit that we called last night the painful visit. And it was a visit out of emergency. And it wasn't, they didn't feel it anyway, an act of grace. He was angry when he went, and he ended up having to leave with the situation just in shambles. So his opponents are saying, well, look at that. Can you trust a man like that as your apostle who's always changing his travel plans? Now, with all that, look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 17. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, according to ordinary human standards, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes on the one hand and no on the other. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For in him every one of God's promises is a yes. For, uh, for this reason, it is through him that we say the amen to the glory of God. But it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as a first installment. But I call on God as witness against me. It was to spare you that I did not come again to Corinth. I do not mean to imply that we lord it over your faith. Rather, we are workers with you uh, for your joy because you stand firm in the faith. So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. Now do you see what he's saying? Yes, my travel plans changed. Changed twice. That does not mean that my yes is no and my no is yes. It doesn't mean you can't trust my word. I fully intended to come to you twice and to be a double blessing to you. But you people were out of control because you were listening to these false apostles, because you weren't doing what you should have been doing, because I heard these reports about what was going on. I had to change my travel plans. And that in and of itself was an act of grace that I didn't come back a second time because it would have been ugly again. So I did show you double grace by not coming back the second time. And, and then he says, so my yes is yes and my no is no. It was an emergency that caused me to have to change my plans. And the emergency was you. And so now he moves in verse, in verse 21 here, he's, he's saying... It's, it's God who has endorsed my ministry. It is God who has established us as apostles. God's yes is yes. You can trust God. And so you can trust our word also. So he says again in 21, It is God who establishes, who strengthens, who has confirmed us with you in Christ and has anointed us by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as a first installment. So Paul uses four participles here to describe how God is working in his ministry as the apostle. He, present tense, establishes us or confirms us with you in Christ. So where's his whole apostleship come from? Who has called him as an apostle? Who has established him as an apostle? 
It is God. And then he changes the tense to say, and has anointed us, that's one, by putting his seal on us, that's two, and giving us his spirit. Again, it's all about God who has established him and has anointed him, uh, which is, is a powerful image here of, of God anointing him as an apostle like kings or prophets were uh, anointed in the Old Testament. He has put his seal on, a, on us, which is the mark of ownership and protection. It's sort of a, a commercial term. That's what God has done. He has put his seal on us. You put your seal on something to show ownership of something. And to say, if you mess with this with my seal on it, you're messing with me. And so Paul says, he has established us in, the, in our ministry. He has anointed us. He has put his seal on us. And he has given us his spirit as a first installment. You know what a first installment is? It's another commercial term. It has to do with like purchasing something. Uh, you ever go in and put a down payment on something, or earnest money, we might call it, and that guarantees the purchase of something. And if you decided at that some point then you didn't want to buy that, you just lose that money. It's kind of that earnest money idea. That's what, the, that's what God has done by giving Paul and the others his spirit as a first installment, as a down payment, as earnest money, that, that more is to come. He uses the same language in chapter 5, verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's just another way uh, of, of expressing the same idea. And I think all of this is part of Paul's defense. That his apostleship is genuine. The changing of his travel plans does not indicate that his yes means no and his no means yes, and that somehow his relationship with God is not right. To the contrary, it is God who called him. It is God who has established him. It is God who has strengthened him, given him his spirit, and has anointed him. And then the rest of chapter 2, he talks about the painful visit, the painful letter. And then at verse 5, let's start there. I read last night chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's pick up at verse 5. Here's where Paul makes reference to the person who'd acted badly when he visited on the painful visit and the Corinthians didn't defend him when that happened and he was really hurt by that he says but if anyone has caused pain he's caused it not to me but to some extent not extent not to exaggerate it to all of you this punishment by the majority is enough for such a person so now instead you should forgive and comfort him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow so I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote you for this reason, to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So here's the situation when Paul had visited on that painful visit Part of what made it painful was somebody had acted badly towards Paul. They had not defended Paul. Paul leaves with the situation in shambles and writes that painful letter, that tearful letter that I mentioned last night. 
part of that letter was telling the church they needed to deal with this person. They needed to take church action. Church discipline needed to be taken against this person who had confronted Paul, made some accusations against him, treated him badly. That needed to be taken care of. This is part of what he wrote them in the painful, tearful letter. Well, remember I told you Titus carried the letter and he waited at Troas and Titus didn't show up, so he kept going and they met in Macedonia. Part of what Titus told him when they met there was, yes, the letter worked and they've dealt with that person. They exercised the the church discipline you'd encourage them to do. They did it. So now Paul's writing to say, that's enough. You exercise church discipline. Now you don't need to continue to pile on the guy. I've forgiven him. Now you need to forgive him. If you continue to act sort of punitively towards him, almost punishing him for what he did, you're, you're giving Satan a, a sort of a, a beachhead to work in, in this church in a negative way. So it's time now to forgive and to move on. You took the appropriate action. Apparently the person had made some sort of repentance and restitution, so now it's time to move on. And can you see why? With all the potential for disunity in this church. Remember when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he spent four chapters dealing with the disunity and disharmony there. The last thing they need is another reason to be split and divided. And if they continue to take punitive action against this person, it it might establish the kind of beachhead there to lead to more disunity. And so it's time to forgive and move on. Paul is all about church discipline. You, You see it consistently in his letters. But church discipline is not punitive. You don't exercise it to punish someone. Otherwise, who gets to determine when it's enough? Who gets to say, well, I think, I think that's enough punishment for what they did. It's not punishment. Church discipline is about the redemption of the person. It's about redeeming that person. It's about taking action that alerts them to the seriousness of the situation and hopefully brings them to a situation of repentance and restoration. Church discipline is about restoration, ultimately. Now, if we don't take church discipline, there's a very good chance that the person may never be restored. They may never even see the need to repent. And that's, that's a dangerous situation for the church to be and for the person who's committing the sin. So I don't know. I don't know. I've not looked in your documents to see what, what this church and your constitution says about church discipline. But I know what Matthew 18 says about going to a person and trying to restore them. If that doesn't work, you take more people. And if that doesn't work, now it becomes a church discipline issue. Churches have to find a way to exercise church discipline. We just cannot keep looking the other way. Now, how to do that is a much bigger question. And um, I have a lot of confidence in Owen uh, when if you come to one of those situations, he'll have a tremendous amount of wisdom uh, to work on this together with you. 
uh, to figure out how's the best way to, un, to take this action of church discipline. But they'd taken it, and he's glad, and it's time for them to move on. And he says in verse 12, When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord, but my mind could not rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said farewell to them and went on to Macedonia. And that finishes off that story about the tearful letter. And then he met up with him and everything was good. Okay, now let's move on. If you're looking at your outline there, A, Paul's defense of his travel plans, 112 through 213. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now the character of Paul's ministry, 214 through chapter 7, verse 4. We'll go as far as we can. So the character of Paul's ministry. The first thing he says about his ministry, the first way he describes the character of his ministry is he describes his ministry as a ministry of suffering. It's, it's, verses, it's chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing Him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not peddlers of God's word like so many, but in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God and standing in His presence. So how's this... uh, ministry of suffering the language of we he feels like he's in a triumphal procession that god is leading him in a triumphal procession at first glance you might take that not as an indication of suffering but as an indication of victory that paul's lead that that god is leading paul in a victory parade but i don't think that's the image at all and then he talks about the fragrance, the aroma of Christ. You know what that aroma is, the fragrance? That's the smell of a sacrifice that goes up to God. I think Paul sees himself as a sacrifice, his life as a sacrifice to God. You, like a burnt offering. You can smell the aroma going up to God. And in the triumphal procession, He's not playing the role of victor in the triumphal procession. He's like one of those that's been taken captive, that's being dragged around Macedonia and Achaia and Asia as one who's been taken captive, as one who's suffering. Let me describe for you the Roman triumphal procession. But by the time Paul is writing this letter, Rome's become quite the world power. And by this time... Maybe as many as 300 of these triumphal processions have taken place as part of Rome's celebration of military victories. So what this usually looked like, the parade would be in the city of Rome. If you, if you think of the conquering general, whoever that might be, Pompey or whoever it is, and they're on one of those two-wheeled chariots. If you think Ben-Hur... Maybe I've really dated myself there, but if you, you know the movie Ben-Hur, if, if you think of like a, a, a Roman military general and he's standing on one of those two-wheeled chariots pulled by the white horses, that's, the, that's what leads the, the Roman military procession. 
victory parade. And then behind that, you have a, all manner of, of, of other aspects, but the biggest part of that is the spoils of war. And that might include, you know, jewels and treasures and gold and silver, but it also would be the human casualties of war, those who've been taken captive. And they're dragged along behind also as part of the spoils of war. And they may be executed when they get into Rome. And you have oxen as part of this parade because when they get into the city, they're going to sacrifice them to the gods. And if you, if you, if you sniff when the Roman military parade goes by, you can smell the burning of incense to the gods. And then at the back of the parade, you have some of the general's men who were part of the battle, whatever the battle might be, and they're singing you know, the typical songs that the military people might sing. They might even be a little bit lewd and from time to time even cast dispersions upon the general because they felt there was the need to keep him humble in such an event where he might become arrogant. Now, anybody that, that, that Paul, Paul included and anybody he's writing to, they all know these Roman military processions very, very well. When Paul talks about the triumphal procession, I don't think he sees himself in the position of victory. I think he's describing how he feels as an apostle that, that just gets dragged around all over the place, suffering like a prisoner. And what affirms that for me is then what follows when he talks about this fragrance, this aroma. When he says at the latter part of verse 14, and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. That's that sort of idea of a sacrifice, in his case, a living sacrifice. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. That's the imagery of a sacrifice being made. He is the sacrifice that's made to God, this pleasing aroma, hopefully, to God. It's a picture of suffering. When Paul thinks about his ministry, he realizes his ministry is to a large degree a ministry of suffering. His suffering for his churches, his suffering for the gospel, his ministry was a ministry of suffering. And then in the latter part here, verse, starting about verse 16 uh, and 17, really, I think he tries to describe why his ministry is a ministry of suffering. What causes the suffering for him? In verse 17, he says, We're not peddlers of God's word like so many, but in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God and standing in his presence. He could have avoided suffering by being a peddler of God's word. Now, now what would a peddler of God's word look like? Someone who might look good? Someone who speaks with great rhetorical skill, but someone who never challenges the people on anything that might cause them to feel negatively towards you. Just sort of tell them what they want to hear and charge them a good price for it. And everybody's happy. A peddler of God's word. He says, I'm not that. I could be that. And I probably wouldn't suffer at all. Why, look at those super apostles at Corinth. And what we know, there are all sorts of these traveling philosophers, teachers in the first century, who looked very impressive, who spoke with great rhetorical skill, and who charged people rather significantly for their teaching. One of those groups are called the sophists. It comes from a Greek word for wisdom. 
impressive. They made excellent money in going around teaching and collecting for it so they could... They, could, they lived in luxury, they looked good, they spoke well. They were peddlers of God's word. And yeah, they probably say, yeah, look at us, look how well we're doing, look at all our success. So we're the true apostles of God. And look at Paul. I mean, he's beat down, suffering. He looks like he can't get a break. Now who looks like God's apostle? And Paul, doesn't. he owns it. Yeah, my ministry is a ministry of suffering. And I could be like them, and I wouldn't be any good to you. In fact, I'd be a detriment to you. I'd just tell you what you want to hear. Put a smiley face on all the time. Everything would be fine. I wouldn't suffer, and you wouldn't feel conviction. But what do you really need? And so uh, how relevant does this sound? Can you, can you imagine any peddlers of God's Word that are out there today who look good and sound good and really don't have much of a challenge for people other than, you know, here are 10 steps to success. and You know what I'm talking about. And you think you can draw massive crowds being a peddler of God's Word? You think you can gain a lot of popularity and a lot of power even by being a peddler of God's Word? Do those guys look like they're suffering a lot? Not the ones I see. They look just exactly like the people Paul's dealing with, who are these false apostles at Corinth. And Paul looks like he's beat down and he's suffering and he has a hard, hardship consistently. And it, but for Paul, that's almost a badge of honor. It says, I'm not a peddler of God's word. And... Uh, I might not always be popular because of it, he says. In fact, I'm a living sacrifice, a fragrance, an aroma going up to God. So his ministry is a ministry of suffering. Then at chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, he characterizes his ministry as a ministry of the Spirit. Now listen, he starts with two um, questions, rhetorical questions. The answer to both of which is no. First, he says in 3.1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And I think the answer to that in his mind is no. We're not just commending ourselves. We're not just defending ourselves. Well, I think what Paul feels like he's doing is he's trying to give the Corinthians the information they need to remind them about the nature of ministry so they can defend him against these false apostles. He didn't want to just be commending himself. It's not Paul against the apostles, these super apostles. He wants the church to defend him. So he's giving them a good reminder about the nature of his ministry. So I don't think Paul feels like he's just commending himself again. And then he says, do, Surely we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? Has it come to that? Have you been so persuaded by these false apostles that now I need some letters of recommendation so you can be confident about my ministry? I mean, it, I started you. I was the apostle who founded you. And now I need letters of recommendation? And letters of recommendation are not just new. 
In Acts 18, there's a fascinating little passage there. Apparently, Apollos is going from Ephesus to Corinth. He wants to work there at Corinth as a minister. And they're going to write him letters of recommendation. Priscilla, Aquila, maybe even Paul. So that the church at Corinth could be confident about Apollos, you know, the apostle. So there was this practice of writing letters of recommendation, but Paul's saying, surely I don't need a letter of recommendation to you. And he goes on. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I almost feel like I need a letter of recommendation for you. You are our letter of recommendation. I mean, we came to you. We preached the good news. God spoke to you. He wrote his law on your hearts not in ink not, not on tablets of stone but on your hearts and you are our letters of recommendation surely we don't need letters of recommendation to you and then you, you notice this last little line here in verse 3 when he says not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts now what's that sound like when you hear tablets of stone what do you think of? You think of Moses? You think of Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the law written on tablets of stone? You remember when that happened? Like Exodus chapter 32, 33, 34, that section there. Let's just recall that scene because Paul's going to pick up more from that. It's clear that Paul has his thoughts, his mind, on Exodus 32, 33, 34. He's thinking about that section of the Old Testament here. Because he's going to talk about Moses and the veil. That's what's coming up. Tablets of stone. You remember what happened? Moses is on the mountain, meeting with God, and God is like handing him the law on tablets of stone. So this is like, in a, I don't think it's a crude way to think about it. I think it's a, the perfect way to think about it. This is God consummating his relationship with these Israelites. He's brought them up uh, out of the Egyptian bondage. And, and now they are going to be his people. And they're going to go into the land that God had promised. And it's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And, and here are sort of the, the guidelines for the relationship. Here's what God expects of them, and he's giving it to Moses. So at this great moment when this relationship is being brought together, almost like the saying of the I do's, Aaron's in charge of the people down at the foot of the mountain. And maybe it's taken Moses a little longer than they thought it would, so what do they start asking Aaron to do? Well, we, we don't know what's happened to Moses, and you know he's a little flaky anyway. We, we really don't know whether we can trust him at all because, you know, they grumble and complain about him all the time. And so they say, we really need something to worship here. How about a calf? Aaron, could you help us put together some sort of idol to worship like a calf? And Aaron says, well, 
He looks up, he doesn't see Moses coming. Well, I'll tell you what, let's just put all our gold together and we'll melt it down here in the mold of a calf. And they did it and they worshiped the calf. And while Moses is up on the mountain, God says, we got a big problem. And, and lets him in on kind of what's going on down off the mountain. And so Moses, carrying the tablets, descends from the mountain and when he sees what's going on, he bashes the tablets. Just craps, crashes them on the ground. And what would, why would he do that? What's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. And what does he witness them doing? Having another god before him. Worshipping a golden calf. Commandment number one, they're breaking he bashes the, the tablets. And, and, and somehow he melts down the golden calf and, and into a powdery form and puts it in the water they drink and forces them to drink it and people die. And then he gets the Levites, calls them over the Levites, and he says, get out your swords. And they just get out their swords and he says, now walk among the people back and forth. And 3,000 people died. I mean, that sounds pretty serious. And then Moses, having the situation underhand, more in hand, you know, he says to Aaron when he comes back down, Aaron, what were you thinking? And Aaron's like a little kid. Aaron says, well, I, I really don't know. He, he said, everybody just started to throw their gold into the fire and it came out like a calf. It's just the craziest thing. And so, you know, you got a calf. I mean, we worshiped it. I know we shouldn't have. What were we thinking? Well, Moses has bashed the tablets and people have died. So now he goes back on the mountain. And God says, yeah, give me some more tablets. So now he's, he's going to give him the, he's going to write on the tablets again. And, uh, and Moses says, in, in light of all that's going on, I just want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And God says, I can't do that. No one can see my face, you know, this image of God in all of his glory, and live. So Moses now comes down. He's got the tablets. And the funny thing happens to Moses when he comes down. You remember what it is? His face is shining, it's glowing. Because he's been in the presence of God. Now what does that shine, what does that glow potentially do? That's what God just said to Moses. No one can see me and live. That glow is a little dangerous. So what does Moses do? He puts a veil over his face. And I think somehow, I think we've misinterpreted that, that he's trying to hide something. That Moses doesn't want the people to see that the glory sort of fades from his face, so he hides it, so somehow he can, it's almost deceptive, so he can kind of, you know, keep the glory. The text never indicates that Moses is doing anything deceptive or arrogant or anything like that. In fact, I would argue the opposite of that. Moses covers his face because that glow could kill sinful human beings. He covers his face as an act of mercy so he can be among the people. Because that's a dangerous glow. You know, that glory of God, 
among people who melt down golden calves and worship them? I think it's an act of mercy. So now we come back to our text. He says in verse 4, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our competence is from God, who's made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You want to see a perfect example of how the spirit kills? It's the text we were just talking about. 3,000 people died. Why in that story in Exodus 32, 33, 34? Why did 3,000 people die? Because commandment number one was, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only. And they violated that commandment with their idolatry. And what was the result? People died. Death. Now, does that mean the law was bad? Does that mean there was something flawed about the law? Does that mean the law was not holy and good? Absolutely, the law was holy and good. And there was nothing wrong. There was God's glory was all over the law. But that's the consequence of violating the law. It wasn't the law's fault. It was sinful, hard-hearted human beings. And the consequence of the law, violating the law, was death. The letter kills. 3,000 died there in that story in Exodus 32 through 34. But the Spirit gives life. Is Paul a minister of the Old Covenant or the New? Is Paul a minister of the law or of the Spirit? And this is the way he's getting around to argue that his ministry is a ministry of the Spirit. No one can charge that Paul's ministry lacks the Spirit or that somehow he does what he does by purely human means. Verse 7, he says, Now, if the ministry of death, that is, the law written on tablets of stone, the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone tablets came in glory, it had God's glory. So that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now brought to an end. How much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, how much more has the permanent come in glory? Then do you see how he's arguing? The law was good. God's glory was in the law, chiseled on tablets of stone. But how does it compare to the new covenant? That was a covenant written on tablets of stone. How about the new covenant? Where's it written? On human hearts. Which is better? Something written on tablets of stone or something written on the human heart? Which one has the power to impact the world more? Something written on a stone tablet or something written on a human heart? You know what we do with things written on stone tablets? We make memorials out of them. We set them up for people to see and they become memorials. And I'm not sure how much that changes everyday life. 
But how about something written on a human heart? Now that has the power to change the world. Which is better, something written on tablets of stone or something written on the human heart? And what was this old covenant written on tablets of stone? It was a ministry of condemnation. It brought death. How about this new covenant that is written on the human hearts? It brings life. One brought condemnation. One brings justification. And this new covenant is of the Spirit. Now, the old covenant had glory. But nothing to compare with the glory of this new covenant, which is a covenant, a ministry of the Spirit. And Paul is a minister of the new covenant. Something written on the human heart, not tablets of stone. So when you read a passage like, you know, Jeremiah 31, might have already come to mind in contrasting these tablets of stone with the human heart. Uh, Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 33, says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It seems to be looking ahead to a day when God's law is written on the human heart. Paul says, that's what I'm a minister of. And that's a ministry of the Spirit. He says in verse 12, Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside or that was abolished. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from hard-heartedness. Freedom to see the truth and to respond to it. Freedom for the veil to be removed. This is the work of the Spirit. And unless the Spirit removed the veil, we would never see the truth and we would never respond to the truth. Don't ever believe that somehow you were searching and you just happened to find God. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. You hear people talking about finding God. You didn't find God. God found you. You couldn't even know the truth you couldn't see the truth you could not have believed the truth unless god removed the veil unless the spirit does a work in your heart we don't find god he's pursuing us here's a place you might be aware and i don't want you know it's almost 7:30 so it's a good time to get to something like this but you might be aware there's a little debate that goes on in, even in the evangelical world, even in Southern Baptist life. And it's a, it's a complex issue, but you might use the term something like Calvinism and Arminianism. That'd be one way to, you know, it's a question about how you understand God's sovereignty. And it's a question of, um, 
Is it possible to resist the wooing of the Spirit? Um, what is the role of God and God's calling and salvation? These kinds of issues. You know what I'm... You, you, I, I, I just can't get in any deeper to the debate, but you understand the debate I'm talking about. And it seems like that it's like two opposing sides and there's no middle ground. And I would say, here is an area for middle ground in this debate. I think Calvinists sometimes talk about the other side as if we just believe that you can just choose God whenever you want. That it's, it's my choice and I choose God. At, at some point I may choose to choose God and it's me. I get to choose. And that's not what I believe. And I'm not a Calvinist. But I don't believe you can just choose God and, and by human free will. I would agree with my Calvinist friends that no one could choose God unless the Spirit does a work in your heart and removes the veil so that you can see the truth. We are too depraved. We are too selfish. We're too addicted to ourselves. So the Spirit does a work in my heart so that the veil is removed and now I can see the truth and now I have the opportunity to choose the truth or to reject it. Of course, that's where I and my Calvinist friends might, we might part ways a bit. But at the point of the Spirit has to do a work in your heart, you do not choose God on your own. We would not. We are too eaten up with ourselves. The Spirit has to do a work in your heart. The Spirit does that work. Now I have the ability and the opportunity to say yes. And if I choose not, then I am judged. I think there's some opportunity for, for, for a little bit of common ground here in the description that Paul gives of the Spirit removing the veil and making it possible uh, to believe. He says in verse 18, And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, uh, Owen, how much, what time am I supposed to stop? I have an hour, hour, what, what was Nine o'clock? I can't even control his grade anymore. And he's still being nice like that. Let's do a little bit more in chapter 4. Maybe a few more minutes and, and I'll feel like we're at a pretty good stopping place. Uh, this next section is not particularly long and, uh, and I think we can move through it pretty quickly. So what's Paul say here? He says his ministry is a ministry of suffering. The image of the triumphal procession and the aroma. His ministry is a ministry of the Spirit. The New Covenant, written on human hearts, it's a ministry. He, it, it's a ministry, it's a work of the Spirit, and he's a minister of that. So he's a minister of the Spirit. So there's no denying the Spirit in his ministry. And now he talks about his ministry as treasure in an earthen vessel. He says in one. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry... We do not lose heart. Part of what keeps Paul going through his suffering, through his hardship, through his challenges, is that God had shown him mercy. That God had picked him, a violent man, an oppressor of, of the church. And Paul's just blown away by the mercy that God had shown him. In fact, when you look at a passage like 1 Timothy, 
uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Here's, here's a, a companion passage that I think expands a little bit more on what he's saying here. He says at verse 12, I'm grateful, this is 1 Timothy 1, 12. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the gratitude in his voice? Can you feel that he's just blown away by the fact that God would be so merciful to him not only that his spirit would do a work in his heart and remove the veil so that he could see that Jesus was the Messiah not only in his conversion but in his calling that he would call someone like Paul to be his minister in a place like Corinth or Ephesus or Thessalonica And the fact that God had shown him this great mercy keeps him going when it's difficult. He says, verse 2, we've renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is is God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I think that's the, the King James says something like earthen vessels. That's the way I kind of have it fixed in my mind. Or we have this treasure in clay pots. You know, in the ancient world, if you had something valuable, you didn't put it in some extraordinary sort of something to, to keep it or protect it. The most valuable things in the ancient world were kept in ordinary, everyday, fragile human pottery. Handmade pottery. We find these manuscripts of, uh, of, uh, that would have been very valuable at any point because they were manuscripts of biblical books. The Dead Sea Scrolls. They're just in clay pots. You know, today, if you have something that's valuable... We'll spend more on the thing we keep it in or the thing we display it in than the thing itself. I've got some, this might surprise you, I have some autographed Kentucky jerseys in my office. And and I promise you, some of the framing is worth more than the jersey. That's what we do. We put things that are valuable to us, we might spend a lot of money to display them or to protect them. Not in the ancient world. Valuable things were kept in just frail human pottery. And Paul sees this great treasure that God has given, has placed within him, this call to be his apostle, this call first to be his follower, but then to be his apostle. And this great treasure is is absolutely beyond the ability to put a price on it, and yet God has put it in Paul's 
frail human body. This old clay pot. And it's just such a glorious image that God would put something so valuable in something so fragile. And I have a feeling Paul's clay pot had a lot of cracks. When he talks about all the suffering he endured, you couldn't have a human body and it not be cracked by all of that. And I think this is what he's alluding to. He says, so that it, that is the treasure, may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What a description of an apostle called by God and all the human suffering he endures. He feels like he's suffering with Christ and he dies with Christ. And yet he sees the value in it. His suffering and his death means life for these churches. All the hardship he endures. Look at the existence of these churches. That's what happens as a result of the suffering that he endures. His suffering is for their comfort. His death is for their life. But just as we have the same spirit, verse 13, the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Here is this great treasure in a frail human body. And Paul feels like he's facing death all the time, not just metaphorically, you know, like I die daily, like I die to myself. No, he he faces real death regularly. And what motivates him, although his clay pot might be cracked, it is his belief that this body is a temporary body. And that although it might be frail and it might be in decay and it might be suffering at the moment, that there is something far greater that awaits him, a resurrection body. He looks forward to that day of the Lord where he'll get to trade in this frail human body for a body that will not decay, that will not be frail, that is immortal, not mortal, that is imperishable, not perishable. And this motivates him even though he faces such great suffering. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Can you not get excited about that? Is is it just me? I mean, I had to stop on the way over here tonight because I forgot my glasses. I stopped at the CVS drugstore and bought another pair of these because I can't read my Bible without them now. And we were, Amanda was laughing about how thin my hair is getting beforehand. No, actually, she was actually saying it's not so thin, but I know she was just being nice. And, uh, you know, I have uh, my, my, my calf sort of hurts when I run a lot. Now I wear, uh, I've got a big, uh, Luke has seen these pink compression socks I wear. 
Uh, I wear these compression socks now so that my, my, my calves that doesn't get so sore when I run. And Do I need to go on? I mean, you, you can cover up a lot of frailty with a, with a button-down shirt and a pair of dress slacks. I, I feel it. I know it. And yet, despite the fact that we are decaying and we're frail and we're fragile, God puts this great treasure, this great calling He's given us, right in this clay pot. And Paul says, How could I quit? How could I stop when God has entrusted something so grand in me? And someday, I'm going to get a better clay pot. One that won't decay. And I say to that, amen. So let me ask a blessing on you. We'll pick up, uh, we'll pick up somewhere around there uh, tomorrow night at 6.30 again tomorrow night. Say it again, Owen. You're going to say something. Well, you want me to go ahead and say a blessing and then you come on? Or do you want to say something and then me do the blessing? Okay, okay. Here it is. This is the blessing in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all. Amen.